What is up, everybody? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture. I'm really excited about today's episode. I feel like it'll be very thought-provoking, challenging, um, but I feel like they're going to be very necessary things that we're going to be discussing, and I'm excited about the guest that we have today. I'm going to pass the mic to Mickey, and he's going to kind of talk about who is on the episode today. What is going on, everybody? Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, welcome for episode, as it's four now, right? And man, I am just super excited about uh, who we have here with us. Um, man, so we have uh, Pastor Nebiu uh, Kalile from, um, from Sacramento, but he, he's newly just moving, transitioning to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, to a church in Garland, Texas, um, pastoring a community called Pathway. Um, they're good friends of, and family of ours, uh, Perazine. Uh, so, so we're super excited about that, that transition for them and what that means um, for, for our guy here, uh, Pastor Nebiu. And, of course, we have uh, Brother uh, <laughs> B.J. Thompson. Uh, originally from, from, from DFW, from, from Dallas, from DTX, but uh, now I'm from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. been there for a little bit, uh, and, and, and he's, he's been busy uh, with, with all his kids and, and, and the wifey and, and all the ministries that he's been doing and serving, um, and so we're just super, super excited. These are, these are two, if you guys don't know already, these are two um, men of God that, that me and, and Pastor Ebenezer here look up to a lot and, and just love learning from, just being around, listening to their conversations eavesdropping um and, and i'm glad they're they're okay with with the eavesdropping so um just for our own benefit hey so um uh so we're just been receiving a blessing so that's why we're so excited about having this conversation we have conversations like this but like man um having this on a, on a record and so putting this um first for in a place where others like like you guys are, are listeners can can listen in and and just really uh, do the same thing that we do and just pick up from the things that they have in all their wisdom. So uh, and they have years of experience. Pastor Nebi been married ten years. Um, B.J. Thomas has been married 15 years. That's that's crazy. And they both have kids. Uh, so it's just man. Um, and God's been working through them and um, with them, walking with them. So um, I'm just gonna pass it back to 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 Abu here, and he's gonna give us a little info on what we're gonna be talking about. Yeah, so um, the the name of our podcast is Shaping the Culture, and what we want to address today is culture. Uh, we want to talk about the importance of culture, the need to understand what culture is all about, and how a Christian navigates in culture. Should Christians be afraid of culture? Should Christians engage culture? Um, do Christians compromise in culture? What does that look like? And so we want to kind of unpack that and define that from a pastoral point of view, as Pastor Neb is going to be discussing. And also from BJ's perspective, what does that look like locally, day in and day out with the people of God? Um, how do we engage culture? And so I'm really excited. So right off the bat, the very first question I want to ask um, is, what, what is culture? And why is culture important? Well, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, culture is that which basically allows human beings like ourselves to relate to one another. Uh, take for one example, language. Language is an artifact of culture, right? Uh, with symbols, with reference, and so forth. And you, you put um, letters which represent something to us, which we've been taught from early on, sound. You put them together, they make words. Words make up clauses and phrases which make up sentences and paragraphs and thought and ideas and concepts, right? And you just build complexity from there. And, and we got to have some common ground to be able to relate, right? Which is why 
If you get uprooted from one location to another, entirely different language, you're unable from that point forward to relate, right? And therefore, culture is not happening, at least for you. Um, the clothes that you're wearing right now is an artifact of culture. Uh, there's a sense in which you fit in with the area that you're at. There's a sensitivity to what is it, what is it that's suitable in this particular environment. And so culture is what? Shared beliefs, shared values, shared customs, and artifacts that make it possible for human beings to be able to coexist and relate with each other and share life. That's awesome. I love that definition of culture because sometimes when we think of culture, we just think of food and language and things of that nature. But to really break it down in that way shows there's depth to culture and a lot of what we do is attributed to culture and we might not attribute it to culture. So thank you for defining it that way. Um, I guess what we want to talk about today then is, okay, that's culture. Language is culture. Um, the clothes that we're wearing is culture. The shoes we're wearing, um, the way we think is formulated by culture. Um, so what is, the, what is the role of a Christian in culture? Should Christians be afraid of culture? Um, should they participate in culture? Um, if they are allowed to participate, how much of that can they participate in before they're compromising? Um, does culture um, need to be engaged by Christians or do Christians stray away from, do they have to stray away from culture? What, what does that look like um, in the life of a believer? I think um, what it has looked like, it's looked like um, field trips um, to the world. <laughs> um, it's, it's felt extremely tribal. Um, and I, I would even, you know, without trying to be crass, I think it's felt a little paternalistic. It's, we're going to go out into the culture. It's, we're journeying not saying I am a part of culture. Um, you know, I share these artifacts. I share this language. I share these food. Um, I share these customs, and I am a part of it. And so I think the first thing is for us to see ourselves as one another. Um, so when Jesus came and he said the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, I mean, he was saying it because people were not seeing other people as themselves. They were looking at the cultural distinctions, they were looking at the ethnic distinctions, they were looking at the, um, the um, outward distinctions and saying, I am not you, you are not me. And he says, no, love your neighbor as yourself because you are of one another. And so I think one of the first responsibilities we have is to, to almost detangle our minds, to detox from the notion that somehow we're taking a field trip into culture to fix it. Um, because even though it may feel and seem righteous, um, oftentimes it can lead to lots of self-righteousness, right? Because you're comparing and contrasting yourself to those things which you view to be detestable. Um, but then those things become the people. And, and that is the most challenging thing. And so I, I think one of the responsibilities for a believer is to know that they themselves are a part of this, and we all have a culture, and we all have a journey, and we all have different um, wirings and affinities, but I am my neighbor, and my neighbor is myself, um, and I think that's what causes the empathy that our world desperately needs today, so. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I really appreciated that text that uh, BJ brought up. Um, 
the Christian has no choice but to relate to culture in some way. Um, we're a product of culture. Our Bibles emerge out of culture. Um, our faith is rooted in a real, earthy, cultured world. It's not like some of these other religions uh, where it doesn't matter um, what it says in their book. Um, it could be embraced for other reasons. No, a lot of what we have come to believe as Christians highly depends on just the reality of culture and, and accepting that. Now, the problem exists, though, um, because as Christians, we, we believe in the whole creation, fall, redemption, consummation framework that the Bible holds forth. And so we live in a fallen world. That's what brings complexity to the subject. That's why it could be talked about for days. That's why books are written over and over again because of the need to talk about this again and again and again. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. What's interesting is we mentioned a little bit uh, off air about um, a particular author who's not alive anymore, uh, Richard Niebuhr, who uh, wrote a, the, a book on culture, Christ in Culture, at a time when you would have been hard-pressed to find any work, in English that is, on this subject. I mean, it just, nowadays you go ahead and Google or go to Amazon and put in Christianity and culture or Christ and culture or, you know, whatever. In culture, you'll come up with all sorts of books. But during his time, it was difficult, maybe in German, maybe in some other languages. And he, in that book, um, one thing I appreciated was that he laid out five different ways that Christians relate to culture. And, and who knows, there could be other ways, but basically you would find yourself in any one of these five categories. Uh, number one, opposition. Number two, agreement. Number three, Christ above culture. Four, uh, tension. Uh, five, reformation. So what he was basically talking about is opposition and agreement are your two extremes. You got those people uh, in, in culture, Christians, um, who see everything in culture as all bad. The computer, it's not just how to be wise in our use of it, it's all bad. The technology itself, the idea itself is all bad. The TV, chuck it. No, 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 right? Everything is bad, right? That's their solution to culture. Then you got those who are on the other end of the extreme, agreement. They, they take a polar opposite view to culture. They embrace it all. This would have been your uh, Victorian uh, England. This would have been your uh, um, 19th, 19th, 20th century Germany, right? Where they just embrace all of culture indiscriminately. But the other three ways in which he laid out that Christians can relate to culture find themselves in between these two extremes. Um, Christ above culture. This is where you recognize that Culture isn't consistent with what you're finding in the scripture, that there are things to be at pause about. There are things to wrestle with and not to readily receive, and you need to understand exactly where that fits in. Um, tension, which is the other one, was something that Luther held to, which had to do with these two kingdoms. Um, but you would leave them separate. So anytime you were interested in wanting to please the Lord, you would... Uh, be considered with what pleases Christ. Anytime you were interested in wanting to follow along with culture, you would be there, but you never allowed these two to interact with each other. You just held them out in tension. Calvin and even Augustine himself, they came along with this whole idea of reformation. 
where they had more of a transformational view. Augustine with his whole book, The City of God, which is about the city of man versus the city of God. The city of God is a new culture. They had a more transformational uh, view, a more positive view about cultures where you see it as fallen, right? So, so number one, uh, you see culture, which is in creation, as God's good gift to us, right? God's good gift to us. But at the same time, you also embrace Genesis 3, and that is that sin has deeply infected and impacted all aspects of our culture. And, and so, therefore, 3, we're called, we're mandated, uh, regardless of who we are as Christians, we're called to redeem culture in the name of Christ. And so he laid those out as, as, as a way of relating to culture. You, you speaking on redeeming culture, I think Andy Crouch is the one who said um, Christians have a history of condemning culture, critiquing culture, consuming culture, but we don't contribute to culture. And so in the way of redeeming culture and con contributing culture, what does that look like? Maybe, BJ, you can start off day to day as a believer. How do we contribute to culture? I mean, I think the first thing is you have to value it. You can't contribute to something... Um, with sincerity and humility if you don't value it. <laughs> you think it's all broken. You know, I think about the different people in my life and the people that I give the best of me are the people who I love, um, the people who I believe in, um, and the people who I see potential in. And I think, you know, when we, we take on the attitude or the assumption that this world or culture is all evil, I mean, you can't bring the best of you to it. Um, you got to fix it. You have to destroy it. Um, hence the culture wars, right? I, I mean, we, we talk a little bit about this, but, you know, what happened in the 70s was a sincere attempt to try to separate itself from culture with the religious right. And the experiment went, went wrong once you realize, now wait, this means that now we are all just inclusive of people who just look like us, talk like us, go to the same schools as us and read the same books as us undermining this very call to make disciples of the world, to love my neighbor as myself. And so I think it's, it's, it's something we need to be aware of that we can easily become tribalistic in how we approach it. But one, I have to value and I have to love it. But once you love it, um, and it's similar to, to what my brother's saying about knowing there's a fall here, there's something that's broken here. I'm coming as I am you, you am I, right? That's what Cain and Abel he said, I'm on my brother's keeper. Yes, you are. And he just couldn't see it. Um, but I'm coming as my brother to come speak into something for the healing and for the benefit. And so one, I think you have to see it as already worthy of your love. It has to be something already good. Um, two, you have to recognize that there is a level of like, man, kids shouldn't be touched by adults um, in inappropriate ways. We shouldn't have to worry about murder and war. Um, we shouldn't have to go back and forth about racism and how capitalism has created divides among our society. And there's all this wealth, and yet there's still great poverty that exists where people can't get a hot meal. Um, we have to recognize that. The, the third thing I would say is know the history. Um, sometimes we just assume things are the way they just are. <laughs> like your mama is just the way she is. And that's true and it's not true. She is who she is. But there's a narrative, there's a story. Those things came to be in a certain way. Um, and I think you can honestly contribute to culture when you learn how it actually formed so that when you speak into it, 
it's a genuine expression to where culture actually is. The last thing is this. You need to know who you are, right? Um, sometimes we want to be something that I'm not. Um, I was never a great athlete, and it's, it's very obvious, right? You know, get out on the field. I can't dribble the ball. I can't really catch. And so if I try to contribute to culture by way of athleticism, I find myself um, underperforming, being frustrated, um, and wasting these valuable gift sets that's, that, um, that lie deeply within me. And so I think we need to know who we are, refine those gifts, bring them to culture, um, and then celebrate them knowing that, you know what, I may not bring about the mature transformation of this, but I'm only contributing good to my neighbor um, as they contribute that which is good to me. Last thing I would say, don't mean to be long-winded, yeah, last thing I would say is I think because we have so much of, um, of a presumptuous attitude about culture and the world that we don't recognize the dignity and the imago day existing in other people and its capacity to contribute to us personally, right? Um, that tribalism assumes that the world is all evil. Actually, that's Gnosticism, right? <laughs> and everything fleshly is all evil. Truth of the matter is, Steve Jobs has contributed to my life in beautiful and more meaningful ways because of the image of God living inside of him. Um, and you don't have to be of the faith for that. And I think once we're able to also receive with the same type of equality and dignity, from culture, um, then we find ourselves in harmony to the shalom that God is trying to create. So, that's good. Thank you. That you answered that perfect. I love that last part about um, you know growing up as an Ethiopian. Um, everything outside of what was in the church was demonized, right? Because they're not saved, and so because they're not saved, there's nothing that they can contribute to us. And uh, I believe all truth is God's truth, right? And so if Hitler were to say two plus two is four, I can't deny that truth because he's Hitler, you know? Regardless of how much he falls morally, um, if he's communicating truth, I can benefit from that, you know? And so I guess another, another question I would ask or something we can play off of is like, how do we navigate those spaces? How are we able to take the good from people that aren't not of the faith? You know, how do we take um, things that they can contribute to us and filter it through the word of God? Because not everything they say is truth, but like how do we find truth in what they have to say and how can we see the value in what they're giving? John says uh, in one of his epistles, to the pure, all things are pure. Um, the first time we see a city is with Cain, just after he kills Abel, going to build one. And what are cities? Cities are basically um, indicative of culture, right? When we're talking about cities, we're talking about culture. Um, we need to realize something that we, we, we brought up a couple of times, which I, th I think is, is important, and you need to allow these two things to coexist, and that is um, the one truth that we are created in the image of God, and therefore this reality of common grace, right? God allows his reign or his son, shine, son to fall or uh, to be experienced and enjoyed by both the just and the unjust. He's not in, it's not like you see only Christians with, with the sun over their heads, right? Um, what is being communicated there, the principle there, 
is that you don't need to become a Christian to produce an iPhone, mm-hmm. right? Um, God's common grace is spread across all, right? Um, and so that's why you can have a someone that you may differ with. Let's say if they share a different sexual orientation, right? You, you have differences, but you're friends. And you know what? Chances are, in some cases, they may be far more kind and compassionate and patient than you are. They carry that. They didn't have to become a Christian. It's God's common grace in them. You may find someone um, able, far more self-organized, far more of a self-starter, far more of uh, someone who knows how to create systems and processes and structures than you do. But, but you're a Christian. How could they be more skilled and apt at that? God's common grace, you see? So um, we, we have to be aware of this. Otherwise, we're going to be turned off by people we should be recognizing and affirming and so forth. And I think that will help us be closer to each other, like how we started off, uh, loving your neighbor as, as yourself. And so what I w- the, the complexity about all of this is people are sinners. When sinners get together, they organize their sin. Um, they, they symbolize their sin, right? And they translate their sin into institutions and schools and organizations and songs and lyrics and paintings and books and so forth. So everything that we're seeing around us that has somewhat of a shaping influence on our kids' lives, even on our own lives, through whatever medium or platform or institution, is, is the result and the expression of people behind that. So at the end of the day, what we realize is culture is passing away. That's really what Augustine was getting at in his book, The City of God. And he was dealing with the Roman Empire falling. So he, he saw the, the primary symbol of culture and society, which gave people identity, was collapsing before people's eyes. And he had to wrestle with this as a pastor and as a theologian in his day. And so what we need to realize is Jesus, uh, God, um, John himself said in 1 John 2 that the world is passing away along with its desires, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, meaning culture is passing away, but people are not. They're going to be ending up one place or another. And the gospel is before it's for culture per se, it's for the individuals who live in culture and could be impacted by culture. So there's a sense in which We are privileged to be talking about a subject like this, like our brothers and sisters in previous times would not have been able to. And what lends our ability to have this kind of conversation is because of the kind of government, the kind of uh, country, the kind of constitution that's framed this country, the time in human history that we live in allows us to be able to have the kind of conversation that could actually perhaps make a difference but there was a time, look, look at Paul's days. Look at the time. They, couldn't, they wouldn't have been able to see culture shaped in that way. Were they making a difference? Yeah. These men who came to us, these men who turned the world upside down have come to us also. Right? But how was it? Nero was still in place. Right? And the one who succeeded him and so forth. Things were still intact. Slavery and other things that were taking place, that women's rights and so forth weren't enjoyable. Sometimes some people are tempted, ah, we need to get back to the time where it was good for Christians or for conservatives, where um, abortion was unthinkable or where there was no um, 
this kind of a divorce um, with no, uh, how do you refer to it, um, uh, no-fault divorce, or, you, or um, you, you name it. But uh, women weren't allowed to vote at that time. Uh, segregation was existing at that time. Um, um, uh, minorities and people of color were disadvantaged in many ways at that time. So it's a choice that we make to look at certain advantages that were existing at a certain time, and because of that, we want to go back to there, all the while realizing there were so many other things that were going on that were a disadvantage. What am I saying? That at any point in human history that you and I are tempted to want to look back on, saying those are the days we need to get back to, if you look hard enough, even that time was marked with sin and marked with a need for redemption. So our hope doesn't ultimately lie in any point in human history, both past or future. Our hope in what we're discovering with the breakdown in culture is in a new city that our God is preparing, a new culture that's not going to be here, I think. That's awesome. So we're actually on Instagram Live right now, and there's some questions that they want to ask you guys. So I'm going to pass the mic to Mickey. Yo, it, it's, it's been awesome uh, so far, this, this conversation. So we, we have a couple questions that, that, that people are sending in. Um, so that first one here is, um, so it goes like this. Uh, what is the most effective way to shift a culture that has already been established but isn't really productive? And that's from Yoni out in Kansas City. Yeah, so if the question is, what's the most effective way to shift a culture that isn't productive? Um, I disagree. I, I think that every culture is effective. Um, the problem isn't if is culture effective. The problem is, do we know how to make it healthy? Um, there's always the, these things that happen among every human being in every city and every you know custom that you know. Well, we we use the word redeemable. They're just good. They're good things. Um, but then the problem is when that good thing becomes the greatest thing or it becomes directed towards self. And so, one, if you see something that's happening within culture that grieves you, um, it could be connected to your passion and purpose. And I need to say that again for people who are listening. If you see something in culture that is perpetually and consistently grieving you specifically, it could actually be connected to your passion and purpose. Um, and that may mean you, you need to learn how that thing actually works so that you can express it in a more meaningful, um, beneficial, um, and expansive way. You know, there, there's plenty of people who've become sculptors, who become actors, who become artists, who become speakers, because they felt a deficiency occurring within that particular genre, field, or area of discipline, and they knew for themselves, that they wanted to see that expand into a more meaningful, healthy way. And so if you're going to architect something, one, you have to learn that field. Two, I think that the other thing about us is if we don't do the problem, um, Nancy Pierce in her book, Total Truth, and I want to refer to some of these authors who will very explicitly talk worldview. I mean, there's a stat that says only 5% of Christians have a Christian worldview, Right. And I, I think we need to be very sober about that. Some of our even assumptions about what we think culture is and what people are, it could be very off. It could be very wrong. And I think having humility to say, I'm going to be a fellow learner on a journey with other human beings who have you know, deficiencies in the same way that I have deficiencies. And I only want to bring good 
as unto myself, unto my neighbor. And I think when you do that, as you make your contributions to culture or to the people around you, you can do it with much more love, much more humility, um, and it could be a healthy expression of what you're trying to come across. So, yeah. Awesome. So, and then we have uh, so one more question I want to get to. Uh, it's actually an interesting question. I'm glad I'm glad um, uh, Hongo Meti uh, sent this question in. So, question is uh, how do we view cultural appropriation, and how should we go about it? I've never had heard this question in in this context under under faith and how how we should view cultural appropriation and how we should go about it. All right. So, for those of you listening who are not familiar with culture appropriation. Cultural appropriation is essentially the idea of taking on one set of customs without knowing its true worth and value and meaning. Um, it, it would be the equivalent of putting on a Native American headset, um, tribal headset, and parading around you know, at a football game. Um, though you may enjoy the red paint and the feathers and the whole tribal gear, that's not what it actually means within that culture. It's appropriating. You're taking away from something and diminishing its worth and value the same way with things that happen in African-American culture, maybe like a cornrows. And, you know, you, you rock these cornrows as a way of expressing yourself, but that's not necessarily how that symbol is being used or what it means to that culture. And so truly cultural appropriation is, is almost our lack of respect or dignity for a particular meaning that does not honor the people who originated that particular custom. Um, so when you ask about that from a faith perspective, what do we think about cultural appropriation? One, because the faith is so diverse, it's a global entity. It is not just the local, it is a global entity. It's very challenging to appropriate because there's so many tribes, tongues, and nations, right? So one, I think we need to know that. Two, I think we need to recognize that there was a culture, a Christian culture that was built, but that Christian culture that was built doesn't necessarily mean that it's mature or healthy. You know, the God bless America, um, you know, whatever those different symbols, though they may allude to religious sentiment, they don't necessarily manifest themselves into true maturity from a biblical perspective. And so I think we need to be able to say, man, maybe some of the customs of our culture are not necessarily consistent with our faith um, and be able to reevaluate those things with humility. Um, the third thing I would say is this. Appropriation is very sticky because there's different tribes, tongues, and nations, and people that all make those things up. But I think what Pastor Neb was alluding to earlier <clears throat> was this. We recognize, yeah, there's something amazing and there's something beautiful there, but there's also something that's deadly there. And, you know, back to your question, Eb, you need to study the truth in order to practice the truth. You need to <laughs> apply the truth in order to be able to discern the truth. Um, and until you're able to do that, you really don't have a good grasp on the depth of those things. And that's where the equipping process comes in um, on a local level with leaders and teachers and speakers. So, yeah.
Uh, one question that, that I would like to, to toss in here. I, I don't I don't know if you guys um, watched the BET Awards. It, it was just I think last weekend was it or, or two weekends ago, um, and there was there was a moment um, that I found really interesting. So Solange won an award, right? Uh, I'm I'm not sure what what she was maybe best female artist or something like that. Um, so she won a pretty big award and it was huge for her. Um, and so when she went up on stage, what she what she did was she she said I I just want to thank the universe, right? So she said, I want to thank the universe. And, and, and usually, um, especially when it comes to, to black artists and, and people who influential in culture, first thing you hear out of their mouth, whether they profess Jesus Christ or not, is, I just want to thank God, right? I just want to thank God, no matter how many, how explicit their album was, or you know what I mean, or how their merch looked, if there was naked women on the merch, or whatever, first thing out of their mouth usually is, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and my mama, right? Um, and, and it was funny, because when I went on Twitter, uh, black and Christian Twitter, um, they 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 were going at it, um, and, and they were just talking about like how is she gonna how is she gonna say I want to thank the universe like you better put some respect on God's name right, and and, and I thought this was interesting right, and, and what I what I kept seeing as I was scrolling through the mentions right was just really really bad engagements between Christians and, and non-believers right of and it's funny because they were of the same ethnic cultural. A circle, right? It, it, this is all black Twitter, right? Um, but there's within that there was believers and there weren't believers, right? Um, and so it was there was this this uh, this divide of like you can't just assume one 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 of the main main points was uh, you can't just assume that all black people are, are are Christians. Like this is 2017, you know, God is a silly concept nowadays. You know what I mean? Um, so how can we improve on on the way we engage with people within within culture who are influential in culture, but in a healthy way, right? Um, and just improve on that. I, I don't know if which one of you guys want to uh, take that take that one up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, one passage that comes to my mind real quick is um, Romans chapter one verse nineteen, where Paul himself is dealing with this. Again, this isn't new, right? Um, he knew how to deal with, he knew how to meet people wherever they were on their spiritual spectrum. Acts 17 is one. This, this unknown God that you have here, right? You're making some reference. You're trying to acknowledge something or someone or credit it to something, who you are, why you're here. But let me tell you who he is, right? So he began where they were. And he took them to where he, he believed God wanted to take them, right? So in, in one sense, you see contextualization there, right? Hot button uh, word. So here he says in Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, the ones who want to credit the universe, and not God specifically, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the universe in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise by standing up and thanking the universe, <laughs> claiming to be wise. In fact, what ended up happening? They became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal, personal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And let's even throw in there the universe. Therefore, last, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Thanking the universe is a lie. And worshiped and served the, cre the creature or the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It didn't say the universe is blessed forever. Amen. The creator is blessed forever. Amen. And so all this is indicative of is um, we live in a world where people need to know God. And it's our role. Um, I'm not surprised. I, I would have done the same thing had Christ not come into my life. And so if, if, if it wasn't that, I know prior to Christ coming into my life, I was thinking either myself or I was thinking something or someone else. Just thinking my parents alone isn't making me any more righteous or better than a person who's prepared to thank the universe. And so what more are we supposed to expect, right? But what the scriptures teach us there is every single human being knows deep down because God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless, says Augustine, until they find their rest in the universe? No, in thee. This is so challenging because, you know, the word also says, you know, that they were led astray because of thee. And um, I think there's a personal indictment for the community of faith that when we are not, um, when we don't abide by the, um, the word of God, it gives a wrong message to the world. Um, and it does turn people astray. It's a poor testimony. It's poor stewardship. And I think some of what I observe, and the question is, how do we respond? How then shall we respond to this universalism? I think sometimes we need to repent first, right? We need to go, man, what, what, are, we, uh, what are we giving off that will cause people to say, I don't want any of that, right? Whatever this thing is, I want to stay as far away as possible but I want to retain my worth and my value and my belief and my faith in the most high by claiming to believe in the universe. And I think for us, instead of us going straight to, I can't believe you want to have that faith system. Sometimes we need to ask, Miss 2016 was such a difficult year for culture and for people, the marginalized. Sometimes we should say, maybe we should repent. Maybe there's something that we're doing that's giving off the wrong message about our father and his, the way he loves the world and gave his only son for that so that when they come into contact with us, our testimony isn't diminished by our walk um, or lack thereof our walk. And so, you know, this whole idea that Jesus, when he says, before you go to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, your brother's eye, you take the plank out of your own eye. And I think... We need to make the regular practice as people of faith to, to go, well, before I critique this person, man, maybe we should do some self-examination, deal with it at its root, and then respond and say, hey, you know what? We gave the wrong message off by saying we really love money, political power, positioning, social class. We love safety. Really, we've been loved and sacrificed for um, and we don't deserve it. I am you, you am I. And that grace is the thing that's allowing me to wrestle through my own stuff. See, that is the aroma of grace. 
That's the aroma of Christ. It's not being able to put a bumper sticker on the back of your car, get a tattoo, get a shirt that says you're bold for God and you really believe. The aroma of Christ is when you're met in weakness and can still testify to the goodness of God despite yourself. Um, that's what the world needs to see. And so I, I really think there's some plank work that needs to be done with us before we go in on, you know, whoever, if it's an a, a artist, whatever, whoever it is, there's some plank work that needs to be done within the faith community so that we can elicit more of a, have more of an integrity about the message and the word that we say we do believe. So, Sheesh, this mic is on fire. <laughs> Can't believe it. I, I got just a couple more questions and uh, we can we can just see what, what happens from there. But it'll, it'll be directed at Pastor Neb and then another question for BJ. Uh, my question for Pastor Neb is this. Um, as a pastor of a local church, um, how does culture influence the way you pastor and shepherd your people, whether it be how you disciple, how you give messages, um, and anything and everything in between all those things? What, um, what is your role in understanding culture? Um, what is your role in understanding the people that you pastor, the culture of your church even, and how does that impact the way you present the word of God and, and the way you disciple um, your people? You know, what's interesting is... Uh, Tim Challies out of Canada, um, international blogger, um, just recently put out an article that went viral um, April of, of this year um, where he picked up Gallup's most recent study and poll done on what is the most popular, trendiest thing going on in the church. Um, it's not the fog lights. Uh, it's not the smoke. It's, 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 it's not the worship, it's not the new styles, uh, it's not even the pastor, it's preaching. Preaching is in, says Gallup, like never before. And it's a particular kind of preaching, preaching that's based on the Bible. And you know what he's pointed out was, as, ex as excited as he was, um, it's, it emerged out of pragmatism. And so the reason why it's in is because it looks like that's what people are interested in at the moment. And what the way he ended the article was his concern was, of course, was that as quick as it became popular and trendy, it could easily exit out the back door and something else could take its place. And so I think the most important thing as a pastor, if there are pastors listening or if there are preachers who have to uh, be in the saddle Sunday in and Sunday out, um, and have a flock is to make sure that if preaching is going to be a priority of yours, that you're going to uphold, that it's not for pragmatic purposes. You ought to be committed to it based on conviction, based on what you discover through your personal time in the scriptures is what God believes is the best thing that you can offer your people in season and out of season is what Paul told Timothy. Right, When culture is favorable and sympathetic and is turning an ear toward what you have to say, and when culture is saying, look, that's not what we want to hear at this moment. That's not something that we're just dealing with now in the 21st century. Timothy had that on his plate as well. And he says, don't let any man despise your youth, but rather show the believers an example. How so? 
Watch both your life and your doctrine, he said. Those two, right? Make sure you're living a life that's consistent with your message, right? Don't be someone who's prepared to tell everybody everything, but not be prepared to live this life out yourself. So be authentic, be sincere, be transparent in the fact that you're just as much in need of the grace of God as the people that you're preaching to, and be bold, be forthright, be candid, be clear about what you know is said in this book and offer that to your people. He says, watch both your life and your doctrine, and by doing so, you'll both save yourself and your hearers, this culture, you see? So that's, you're making a contribution. Sometimes it looks like you're not, unless you're a blogger or unless you're out there, unless you travel. Encourage your brothers and your sisters, other members of your body, who are serving in other capacities on different areas. And at the same time, realize as they are doing that, you're doing something as significant as they are. It's very similar to the temptation that a mother has of two or three or four kids. Feels like, I feel like when I was single and when I was in the corporate world, when I was just out there traveling, that I was making a difference. But now with these kids born and with them this young, and not able to do things like I did in my previous chapter in my life, I feel like my life is insignificant. But there's that cliche, isn't there? The hand that rocks the, clater, uh, the cradle rules the world, changes the world, could shift culture, could shape culture, could change culture. How? By what you're doing. These are individuals that are going to eventually make up society, right? And so as a pastor, you have, it's almost like you're maternal. You, you have these children, right? And the nature of your responsibility and the demands that it plays on you, in, in some sense, limits you. You can't be as itinerant and all out there, right? Especially if you're a typical preacher. You're not this, you know, these kinds of preachers that have staff that could do everything. You could be all over the place. And so I understand that kind of a pastor. But I want you to understand, if you're tending to your flock and you're giving yourself to them, it's very important with one foot in the culture and with one foot in your Bible, with one foot in the pews and one foot in your Bible, you're making a difference. That's so good. That's so good. And for you, BJ, man, I know you work with... <laughs> no, you're going to spit that fire too. I know you work with the Navigators um, in, in Atlanta and you help disciple college students. And so how do you engage the young people to really engage culture and engage the word of God day in and day out as just... You know, there is no JV and varsity. There is no, oh, the pastor is doing it, and I'm just over here doing something else. I know we're all called to something significant because we're all called to shape culture. And so how do you, day in and day out, as you're discipling these, this next generation, um, encourage them to walk this out? Yeah, it's a great question. So <clears throat> discipleship started the day you came out of the womb um, and will continue to the day you go to the tomb. I think we have wrong assumptions about discipleship. We think discipleship starts, as never said this yesterday, once you get a healthy version of discipleship, you are always being discipled. You are always being changed. You're always being conditioned. And that means that we can call people along the journey to something more meaningful, whether they've made a profession of faith or not. A matter of fact, if you're watching this and you are um, a person of faith, a person of faith in Jesus Christ specifically, 
Jesus, Yeshua, met people as teenagers, and many of them are believed to not have professed faith and to later on pass the time once they were with him, right? And so he saw no problem with bringing Judas along the journey with him and discipling him. Why? Because he is expressing life, and at the core of our being, all human beings, they yearn for life, right? Um, His only prerequisite was that they were faithful, right? They would show up. They were available. They make themselves accessible. And that they were teachable, um, you know, to those things. Like, and that's all he needed from them. And I think, you know, as you're trying to engage people, when we say culture, culture sounds so big and um, institutional. Really, we need to think people, relationships, proximity, families. Who am I coming into contact every day with? How am I bringing life-giving to those people in a way that is progressive or incremental to the development of who they are. Um, and so the way that I do it specifically is one, one, I recognize that I am no um, more significant or insignificant than any of my brothers and sisters working in any other field. Um, that would include local leaders, that would include global missionaries, that would include people who work um, in specific structure. like. That would include all those people. I am no more significant or insignificant based off of my position. Two, I recognize that the people I come into contact with, though they may be 18 to 22, they're no more significant or insignificant than people who have made professions of faith. And I think that's a a huge uh, distinction that we need to make because we have embraced this idea that somehow people who've made professions have a greater significance, right? When truly the word says in Galatians to do good to all people, but especially the household of God. And so I think what what it does for me, and I'll wrap up with this because I I know um, we're coming to a close, is this. One, I recognize the dignity in all people. Two, I recognize the dignity in myself. Three, the more I'm able to take the journey, self um, being um, grown and refined by the word of God, I can take people along that journey along with me. Uh, There's a saying that says you can't take people somewhere you've never gone before. Um, And I think too many of us get to the finish line of faith because we've gone through a program, because we have, you know, made a profession and we have come to a certain title. The truth of the matter is when you see yourself as still along the journey, as you call people along that, no matter the age, no matter the demographic, you're able to share new revelations about what you're learning, and collectively you've been to grow into something more healthy. So, yeah. I love that. Man, thank you guys so much. Uh, Pastor Neb, do you have any book recommendation for our listeners that want to engage in understanding culture a little bit more and the Christian's role in culture? I know you're a reader, so you have to bless us with some recommendation. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so if, if now, if you're um, uh, someone who has uh, the privilege of preaching and teaching uh, God's word, you could speak whether you're a pastor or whether you're a speaker. Um, I would recommend Preaching to a Shifting Culture by Scott Gibson. Uh, the second one would be, of course, um, Between Two Worlds by John Stott. You got to have that one between two worlds. So there he has in mind the, the world of your people and the world of the Bible. 
right? There's some people who just remain in one world or the other, but you gotta be between two worlds. Uh, the third one, which is more recent, would be preaching. Communicating faith in an age of skepticism by Tim Keller. Uh, but as far as generally looking at it, BJ, uh, I don't know if anyone caught it, uh, mentioned it in passing, uh, Total Truth by Nancy Piercy, subtitled Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity is one. Uh, Christ and Culture by D.A. Carson um, is another one. Um, uh, Above All Earthly Powers um, uh, by David Wells would be another I would recommend as well. BJ, you got any recommendations? Nah? Uh, um, there's a book by, um, it's either, is it Tom Skinner? Um, he has a book. I think it says it's free at last. It's either black and free, free at last. Great book. Um, the same, uh, I would say another book that I would recommend on impact and culture. Um, oh, I love this book. The Next Evangelicalism by Sum Cha Ra. Um, he does an amazing job. Um, I also think a book that everyone needs to read if you haven't checked it out. It's called The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. Um, and he is giving his journey in history, um, specifically in North America, coming out of chattel slavery and becoming a voice in culture. Um, yeah, those are a few that I'd recommend. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Man, I, I was blessed by this. I was learning a lot. I'm going to listen to this over and over and over again until it seeps into my very being. Um, I just hope our listeners do the same. And I, I just want to encourage those who are listening. Um, the world needs you. The culture needs you. Um, let's not demonize the culture. Let's engage the culture. Let's love the culture. Let's see the dignity in culture, and let's shape the culture. And so um, I hope this podcast episode was able to inspire you, get you thinking through some of these things. Uh, Mickey, do you have any last words before we wrap this up? Nope. All right, well, that, that there it is. This is episode four of Shaping the Culture. Until next time, peace.